BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. What happened to our guests? Just you and me? Yeah, they'll come on after the introductions. Oh, I see. What are we? uh, I think um, we're live. Oh, welcome, everybody. (laughs) We're live. I was just asking, when are we going to do a a literal show? uh, First Tuesday in front of. Uh, people other than our screens, you know, is, do we have a definitive date on that one, Maya? Well, I don't know if we know that for sure yet, but it seems like it, there might be some hope for that happening this summer, at least on some kind in some kind of hybrid format. People might be able to uh, gather outside more safely. So I could I could see a scenario in which we could we might be doing a show in the summer with some limited number of guests outside on the hideout patio and uh, and having hopefully we can also still keep streaming it online as well for those who you know can't make it or don't feel safe being uh, there or if we have to really limit the number of tickets that we sell so that other people can also join online. But yeah, I just it feels like there's like a light at the end of the tunnel and we might be able to be back, back in person Uh, with first Tuesdays. Yeah. It's funny because I was talking about this on my show today, uh, the insanity of Texas. I don't know if you, I don't know if you follow sports, but they had the baseball season opener uh, in Texas, Arlington, Texas, outside of Dallas. They opened up the stadium to absolutely everybody. They jammed the stadium with 40,000 people sitting on top of each other. I'm looking at pictures, not a whole lot of people wearing masks. I'm like, Hey, maybe they know something we don't. Yeah. But it's well, Texas, so I doubt it. So we, uh, we're we live now. Why don't we uh, welcome everybody on? Hello. We are so glad to see you for another edition of First Tuesdays Online. Uh, ben is joining us from his attic. I am joining us from my home. And uh, we have a very special show tonight. So um, everybody... Uh, welcome. Just, I want to say this now, but Ben, don't let me forget to say it again when we get to the question, audience question portion of the show. So for those of you who are watching this on the live stream, in order to participate in the chat, to send us questions, to make comments, to just chat to each other, if you hover your mouse over the screen, over the, over the, where you see the video streaming, in the top right-hand corner, there's a little word bubble and and you click that to open the chat and you'll see Sen is in there, uh, Timmy, Timmy Tutton is already in there, I'm in there and uh, this is the, the chat area where you can send your questions and I'll um, try to remember to tell you all again right before we get to the question. Um, but in the meantime, uh, let's, uh, I guess we'll introduce our guests. So today we have a very special show with Miss um, Anjanette Young and Mr. Pearl Wells. So both of them have come to uh, prominence in the city due to uh, some very tragic and unfortunate interactions with the Chicago Police Department. So 
Anjanette's young Anjanette Young's case by now has become very famous in the city, and most of you all watching might have um, already heard of it and be more familiar with her situation. But basically, in February of 2019, Chicago Police Department uh, conducted a raid uh, on her home that they had a wrong address. Uh, they had a they had a plan for a raid on somebody who was supposedly having some guns in their home. And instead, they broke down uh, Angela Young's door and found her in her home. She was in the middle of getting changed to go to bed. And by now, a lot of people are familiar with this video where she was stuck uh, without any clothes on in her home, trying to figure out what was happening for 40 minutes, demanding some answers, and the cops just milling around her place. and. Um, the subsequently she attempted to get the body cam footage of this raid and was met with a wall of resistance from the city when she filed the freedom of information act request as so many victims of police misconduct often are and uh finally when the video was released uh it was shared uh by her attorney with cbs2 and then the story aired uh, last december that really brought uh all this attention on her case and uh, the rest is kind of history. So she still got uh, a legal case pending against the city and I will ask her a little bit about what she can say about that. But basically um, that's, that's, that's where the case is now. So she's been vaulted into kind of prominence and, um, and has had all the spotlight on her due to this, due to this botched raid that the city, the city still hasn't accounted for why this happened fully, or um, really explain why they fought so hard to try to prevent information about this from, from getting out. And um, Mr. Pearl Wells, her story is uh, a little more complicated, but no less uh, tragic or traumatic. So back in 2016, Ms. Wells' son, Courtney Copeland, was driving his car through the Belmont Cragen neighborhood uh, when he was uh, shot by someone, and uh, he subsequently um, pulled up to the 25th District Police Station and asked the officers there for help uh, because he had been shot. And the officers there basically proceeded to treat him like a suspect, question him, handcuff him, and they greatly delayed in getting an ambulance and getting him to a hospital. And then he was also still handcuffed at the hospital and people at the hospital had to wait for the police to unhandcuff him before they could render him aid. And uh, basically um, her son passed away on the way to the hospital as a result of the police uh, delaying getting him help when he came to them asking for help. And after uh, losing her son, uh, Chaparral basically at first thought that um, this was a, a situation where he, he had been he had been killed by the police, but as she learned more about the situation, she realized this was this was uh, basically a, a murder case in the city that involved somebody else. And as she began investigating the case on her own, because the police basically didn't have any answers for her on what had happened to her son, she also met with like a wall of resistance from the police department to her efforts to investigate and. Uh, acquire, you know, footage that showed what happened to her son as he was interacting with the police that night. And uh, since uh, all of this happened, uh, 
Shapiro also teamed up with the Invisible Institute to create the Somebody podcast, which is available on all podcasting platforms. And I really encourage everyone to take a listen to it because it's really Shapiro's story about what happened with her son and the investigation she conducted and what she learned. So uh, we're really excited to talk to um, both Shapiro and Anjanette about their experiences, about what life has been like on the other side of them and what they've learned about the city of Chicago as a result. So um, let's welcome them onto the show. Normally, this is the part where we would ask for some applause, but uh, I guess you can all applaud in the comments. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Good evening. Great. Ben, you want to take it away? Yeah, I'll start. And uh, that was a great introduction, Maya. Really well done. And I got to give Maya some uh, credit here. Uh, youth leads the old man. It was Maya who told me, uh, Shapiro and Jeanette, about both of your stories. First of all, she wrote about you, Shapiro. So I read it in a reader when she did the story about... Uh, uh, somebody. And then, Anjanette, um, no, my apologies to Dave Savini of Channel 2. I don't watch TV news, so I'm just completely out of it. And I get this text uh, from Maya, Ben, Ben, you got to look at this. And uh, I, I, Anjanette hit me. And I've been living in Chicago since 1981. And, you know, I'm an old, too. And I've seen, I thought I'd seen it all. And then I saw Dan, I have a shout out to Savini, he did a good job. Uh, his news story about what happened with you, and it blew my mind. Uh, and Shapiro, then of course you came on my show and your story, it just stayed with me and it resonated for a long time. Uh, I personally don't know, uh, I'll start with you, Anjanette, and then Shapiro, you follow up with your question. I don't know if I would have had the courage to go public uh, with if it's something that happened to me like that in either instance, okay? I don't know if I could have some of the courage. I think my wife would have, but I don't know if I would have had the courage to do it. Uh, so I'll start with you, Anjanette, and then follow up with Shapiro. Like, the decision ultimately to go public, Anjanette, uh, with all the trauma, having to relive it, just how upsetting it was, what did you have to overcome mentally? You know, What motivated you ultimately to say, I'm going public with this story uh, I can't keep it private anymore. Well, being um, definitely, I would say, the lack of response from the city. So this this happened. This incident happened to me in November. This incident happened to me in February of 2019, and um, I immediately hired an attorney, uh, Keenan Salter, and we, you know, we did the legal battle. Right, we filed all the motions with the city and. Keenan, you know, did all of the legal um, bartering that he needed to do in the city, um, dismissed us basically, right? They they told us um, that they were not when we asked for body cam footage, they ignored us. They ignored us when Keenan filed motions regarding my case. And so it just, Keenan and I sat down and talked and, and we made a legal decision that the best way to get the city's attention is to expose the city. However, exposing the city meant me exposing myself, exposing the most horrific thing that has ever happened to me in my life. And so that wasn't an easy decision to make. Uh, because I'm still in the healing process. I was still very raw in the healing process at that time. 
but I was angry at the way the city didn't respond. And I really felt like I had no other option. So I had to come to grips with that decision. And to be honest, at the time that I made the decision and I told Keenan, my attorney, that, okay, let's do it. I don't think I realized when I made that statement what that would really mean when it actually happened. So we made that, we made that decision, um, you know, early 2020. And because we had to fight the city to even get the body cam footage that we didn't get a chance to even use it until late December. So when we decided to use it, um, Keenan saw it first. I think Keenan got it maybe like August, September. Um, asked me, did I want to see it? And I said, no, I didn't want to see it. I was like, you know, do what you need to do. And so we, we brought in some experts to, you know, digitize it and, you know, um, get it ready for public viewing. I didn't watch the video actually until the night it aired, the night before it aired on TV. Um, just because I, you know, I knew that it would be hard for me to watch. And he sent it to me the night before. And the video that we aired on TV is maybe about eight minutes long. I think I watched about 45 seconds of it. Um, and for me, it wasn't even so much the images as it was hearing my own voice and, and the trauma and the stress and the fear in my voice was hard for me to listen to. Did it bring back memories of what actually happened when you heard your voice in that moment in time? Did it revive what you had already gone through? Absolutely. It, everything just came flooding back. Um, from that night. And um, I would even say to to this day, I have not fully watched the video. Uh, because it is hard. It's hard to watch. But at this point, I'm at a place where it's, it's necessary for me to get the justice that I need. Well, Shapiro, uh, we'll come back to a lot of the things you raised, uh, Anjanette, but let's bring uh, Shapiro in. Uh, very similarly, uh, Shapiro, you're dealing with the, just a catastrophic, unimaginable moment of the death of your 22-year-old son. Yes. Uh, and again, I, I put, I mean, it just would seem so uh, traumatic to have to relive that. Uh, similar question to what I asked Anjanette. What motivated you just to say, you know what, I'm going to pursue this. I'm going to go public with this. I'm going to, I'm just going to confront this as awful as it is. What motivated you to do it? Um, like I said uh, in our previous interview, Ben, that Courtney motivated me because when my son passed away, he was by himself. He was surrounded by CPD, but he was literally by himself. He had no one there to advocate for him, no one there to make sure he got the care and the help that he did. So in death, I felt that I had no other option but to advocate for him and to be his voice because he could no longer speak. And so I immediately uh, jumped into action probably less than hours. I was on uh, 
channel five and channel two outside of the hospital. My, I, they had just let me see my son and I had to go in and defend his name and his honor because Facebook was trying to say that he was a gangbanger. He was a, a, a bad child. That's why he got killed. And I had to tell them, no, I had to let the world know who my son was and that this was a, a awful tragedy. And as I began to investigate what happened to my son, I uncovered even more atrocities that occurred that night. Yeah, I mean, both of you, basically, I, I'm wondering if, if before these events um, that have kind of thrust you into the spotlight, did you have any experience with uh, the Chicago Police Department before, either as, you know, uh, dealing with them, you know, in a, in a neighborhood capacity, being like victims of crime, dealing with them um, just in any way that that uh, that wasn't just hearing about them like what or was this your first time with like your own personal encounter with the police department as a bureaucracy as a structure as an institution and if it was your first time or even if it wasn't um, you know what did you what was like most shocking to you about this experience of like going from ordinary person out there to like dealing with the police department well, I can say for me, um, I'd never had an encounter with police, but I've had family members, friends who also had encounters where they've been just pulled over for no apparent reason. I recall my husband being pulled over, picking up our kids at daycare and basically surrounded by four or five squad cars so they can write him a ticket. And so as black people in America, we have this sense of uneasiness when it comes to uh, policing in America because the history itself tells us that we can't trust them. And so whether you or not you had an experience or not directly, you are it's, it's, it's ingrained in you from, from very young about the relationships that we as black people have and the history that we have had and how they've treated us since we've been in this country. I would definitely say um, I agree with everything that um, Chappelle just said. Me personally, I had never had an experience with the police. And I guess I'm blessed and fortunate um, to that as in no more than being stopped for a speeding ticket on the expressway and um, and it and it was it, it it went well, right? Stopped me. You were speeding. Gave me a ticket. Sent me on my way. And actually, before this, here in the city of Chicago, I had somewhat of a positive view of CPD in the sense that um, the church that I belong to, we have a social justice ministry, and so I've been actively involved in that. And we were once a month going over to CPD headquarters at 35th and Michigan um, as a group um, in support of our community and you know learning about what CPD was doing and um, showing them that we had an interest in our community being safe and we had an interest in 
how um, CPD and local officials were handling things in our city. And so that experience for me had given me some hope that, you know, that, you know, CPD was not as awful as I had heard, you know, in the past. And so that was my only experience with CPD before my incident. Now, since my incident, I would absolutely say that um, everything that Chappelle said rang true for me personally. And that was a shock for me. First of all, just the, the whole way that they ended up at my door, I'd never been in any type of trouble or anything that would make me um, associate with the person that they were looking for. So I've never been arrested for you know anything. I've never been associated or dated you know per se dated a guy that used you know that was in drugs or guns or anything like that. So I've never had a lifestyle that would require CPD to be at my door in the way that they were. But even in the sense that there's a part of me that can look back on this and say things happen, mistakes happen, get it wrong sometimes. My expectation of how they treated me once they found that they had the wrong place um, was shattered. Um, and that's the most shocking part for me. It's, it's not that they got it wrong. The most shocking part for me is how they treated me, even though they had it wrong. And um, I agree with Chappelle about her son not having a voice. I absolutely did not have a voice that night to the 12 men that were surrounding me. My voice was loud and clear, if you've seen the video, of me desperately pleading and crying and begging for them to treat me with some decency. And I was ignored with everything that I said. And so my space where I'm in now, it um, it's motivated by the fact that I won't be silent. I am a person who deserves respect. I am a woman who should be treated with respect. I have a voice and now I'm gonna use it to tell the city of Chicago and to tell the world that it's not okay to treat me this way. It's not okay to treat any woman this way. It's not okay to just treat people in general in the manner in which they treated me that night. Yeah, and the disrespect that you're that you're talking about this the 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 way that they treated you even after the incident. I mean, the incident was like this ho horrible kind of degrading, disrespectful experience. But then it it seems like afterwards you continue to encounter more kind of dismissiveness and disrespect. And to me, this kind of resonates with um, Shapiro with your with your experience when you started doing their work like investigating this case, like finding people in the community who are willing to make statements about what they saw that night, find, identifying like potential suspects. Like you basically found like the likely person who probably shot Courtney. And on top of that, was probably involved, possibly involved with the shooting of another person in a similar car later. And you brought all this information to them. And it seemed like, what you were met with was just like defensiveness and disrespect and resistance. And to me, listening to your podcast, that was like one of the most shocking things about it. Was that was that also like among the many shocking things in the process? Was that something that you really was surprised by as well? 
Uh, absolutely. I think that um, for me, it didn't matter to me how they treated me. It mattered in a, it, it was me trying to get to the bottom line. Sure, I felt disrespected. Sure, I would have hoped that they would have rather worked with me and to treat me with, you know, with utmost respect because I'm a grieving mother because I'm trying to help them to do their job. But I think that it was more painful uh, to me to see how they treated my son because realizing that my son was literally begging for them to help him to render aid, to give them, um, to give him life-saving treatment. He's on the video that we have of my son, he's reaching up, begging them for help and they look at him. And so that dismissiveness mm -hmm. showed me that they have a lack of care, a lack of humanity for black people. So I went in this knowing that if they treated my son like this, who was laying on the, on the ground, bleeding to death and dying, I didn't have a high expectation on how they treat me. But I knew that if had I been white, had I been another color, mm -hmm. they wouldn't have dare even attempted to treat me in the manner that which they did. So I think that. All in all, they embarrassed themselves because they didn't know I was recording them. They didn't know. Uh, so now the world knows how CPD operates. And so for me, in this whole aspect of looking at the bigger picture, it's all about how they treated Courtney, how they treated Courtney in, in, the, in, his, in the final moments of his life. Could you imagine uh, so being alone, shot, scared to death, and then the people that you went to for help mm -hmm. don't help you. Mm -hmm. And these are the, the moments, the final moments that repeat over and over and over in my head because of the fact that my son was by himself. And so, you know, it. I hope that um, they take notice on how they treated Courtney, how they treated Miss Young, how they treat other people who have no voice right now. Because we're not uh, unique to this circumstance of being, this is the norm. It's just that we have been vocal about the treatment and we got support from people like you in the news media mm -hmm. to highlight our stories to bring awareness, yeah. but black people have been calling this out for centuries, not even years, yeah. centuries. We have been telling the world how people are treating us. And so we have to begin to listen because these are the cries of a suppressed people. And so, I'm not just speaking up for myself or my son, but it's also about preventing this. What can we do to make changes? Absolutely. Because we can't continue to allow CPD to dominate and to run havoc. You you talk about the gangs that are in Chicago. CPD is the biggest gang on the face of the earth. The FOP is the biggest gang on the face of the earth. They intimidate more black people, more brown people 
in the world. And they have guns and everything else to make it happen. And so for us to have to continuous voice in spite of, because putting this podcast out, putting, putting, doing these interviews and doing all of the social media about what happened to my son and what happened to me, I'm putting my whole life in danger because they could definitely retaliate against us. Yes. But I believe that I serve an awesome God that will protect me in mine. And, and, and so we have to stand up against this oppressive nature of policing because they are deemed to serve and protect and that's what they must do and we must demand it. Chappelle, um, something that you said that just really resonated with me was um, you and I having the courage to speak up. Yes. Um, I think that your your son's story, Courtney's story, and my story stand out, unfortunately, for one particular reason. We both were people who were unblemished. They couldn't find anything to use against Corey. He was not in a gang. He didn't have a gun on him. You know, those things. For me, you know, there was nothing in my background that they could have used against me. So... Mm-hmm. It's so unfortunate that people who have these experiences and because they have other things in their background, their story is silenced. Their story is swept under the rug. Their story is not believable. Or, you know, people from the outside looking in want to say, you know, well, maybe he deserved it because he Mm -hmm. ran with a game. Or maybe she, you know, deserved it. You know how they did with Breonna Taylor. You mm-hmm. know, they suggested her boyfriend was in drugs and guns, and so it was, you know, it was something that that she put herself mm-hmm. the situation she put herself in. So for Courtney, because that was not the case for him. For me, because that was not the case for me, um, we have an opportunity for um, to elevate the cause. So people are listening to us. It's unfortunate that this is the reason why, but people are listening to us for lack of a better word, we're a little bit unblemished, right? We don't have anything for people to use against us. And it's, it's another reason why I uh, I feel so strongly about speaking up about this is I agree with you 100%. We have to do something to um, get the attention of the city of Chicago, Mm-hmm. Um, um, Mayor, Mayor Lightfoot, um, Superintendent Brown, I, um, I've said it on several occasions. You will continue to hear from me. I will not be silent. I may have been ignored that night, and I may have been ignored with the way that the city handled the case. The mayor lied about even knowing about my case. We know now that that's a blatant lie. Mm-hmm. But now that I'm in a space where to be heard and have an opportunity to speak up about this, I am not going away. I still have an open legal case. And at some point we'll get that resolved. But even when that's resolved, I am not going away. You have now put me in this position. And so I'm going to take it. And I'm going to do my very best to make sure that what happened to me does not happen again. 
I, I totally agree. And like you said, that th those were some of the first things that the detectives uh, stated to me. They said, your son was a good kid. He didn't have as much of a parking ticket. And so you think that that would, they thought that, that was comforting for me to hear. In my mind, I was sitting here listening, like, why are you running him? Why are you investigating him? You should be investigating the people who killed him, not my son. So it shouldn't matter. So to me, when they were saying that, that made me think, okay, if he was a criminal, then maybe they wouldn't put that much emphasis mm -hmm. on solving his case. Mm -hmm. Every death matters. They, that person mer uh, mattered to somebody. So I know my son meant the world to me, but if he was a criminal, he still won't mean the world to me. Yes. And so we have to realize that every life has value and we can't allow CPD or any other entity, the media or anything like that to destroy the characteristics of our people. We just can't. And so I understand that you know, imaging is, is is something that you know we live by, and but every life has value. Every life, every life has value. They mean somebody. Somebody out there loves them. Shapro, I have to tell you this, and Anjanette too. When you were speaking, I was thinking of something. So I'm just going to be honest with you guys. I think I said this to you, Shapro, when you were on my show as well, because it's always on my mind. Uh, Isabel Wilkerson wrote this great book. It came out this year about, it's called cast. And it's all about how all of us, you said, use the word ingrained, Shapiro. Mm -hmm. That's what put it on. We are ingrained with certain prejudices mm -hmm. based on race. And I could, I've been around white people my whole life. I'm just going to share this with you. When a white, per not all white people. All right. Just some of you listeners out there. You're good. Okay. But 99% of white people. All right. When they see a moment like, uh, the, the what involved Courtney, or even in your case, Anjanette Young, in the back of their mind, I'm telling you, they're like, well, we're not getting the whole story here. There's something they're not telling us. Man, they, they shot that guy down in Georgia, and I apologize for forgetting his name, the young man who's running down. I'm not Arbor. Yeah, I, you know how many people told me, well, bet. You don't know what they had on that video before they shot him. I'm like, what could they possibly have on the video before they shot him to justify shooting him? Yeah. But that's that's psychology that's burned into people's brains, Shapiro, and you can't get it out of your head. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely, Ben. And that's what happened the night that they uh, handcuffed my son because they had these preconceived notions in their head that a young black man could not be a owner of a BMW, that he couldn't be- of any crime. Yeah, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't figure out how could he afford this nice car, a BMW 335i convertible. And he, they were more concerned with if Courtney stole the car that he got shot in than Courtney being shot. And that's the great tragedy in all of this because they preconceived him as a criminal as opposed to a victim. And that's how they treated him. But what's more shocking in all of this is that today is still, they still deny the fact of them even handcuffing him. 
they deny the fact of that. And that's crazy. I'm not surprised about that, Chappelle, just in my own experience. When um, so when my story went national back in December, when everyone saw it, it wasn't the first time that we aired the story. The very first time we aired a story was back in November, but we didn't have body cam footage. And so it didn't get the attention like the body cam footage did. However, and the mayor was made aware in November. And so when the body cam, November of the previous year, November of mm -hmm. 2019, mm -hmm. and so the, the body cam footage aired in December of 2020, the mayor stood in front of all of the cameras and the mics and said that she had no information about my case. Over a three-day period, she went from I didn't know to oh, I was made aware, and oh, there are some emails. I mean, over a three-day period, she lied mm -hmm. so many different ways. So quickly. She lied so, so yes. quickly. Yes. And, and that's my thing. You know, you know that your particular case is very unique. You're gonna remember if you saw a black woman naked or if you heard a story about a naked black woman surrounded oh, yeah. yeah. by 12 by 12 cops same thing with my son you're yeah. going to remember uh, the BMW on the 25th and district whether you remember the dates or not you're going to remember that story because the it, it never happens twice so you know my thing is that so you're going to remember this and so i'm telling i'm sitting up here battling with uh CPD about who wrote what in the records? I'm like, this is in your records. Oh no, this is Chicago Fire Department records. I said, well, how many times do uh, paramedics carry handcuffs? Who handcuffed my son? Who went with him? Who unhandcuffed him when he got to the hospital? Nobody knows. So these are the lies they continue to uh, perpetrate against black people and, and the labeling of my son as violent, agitated and combative. These type of adjectives that they use to describe him. They what you were saying earlier, Ben, is that because of those words that police or people in authority use against black people, that makes it more palatable for white people to give an excuse to the torture and the mistreatment of black people. And so that's really the just of what has happened over the years. When you see what happened to Ms. Young, you know, when you when you say that, you know, hey, we don't know the whole story. Oh, uh, uh, what happened? What really happened? We're not given the benefit of the doubt. We're, we're expected to give the benefit of the doubt to everybody and especially to people of authority and the police. But to give black people the benefit of the doubt, that's almost unheard of. Absolutely. And you see it happening now with this, with the 13 year old. I mean, yes. this Adam Toledo case, you know, they're still talking about, did he have a gun? Like, what was he doing out at 2.30 AM? You know, like, it. as you're watching this happen with this child, mm -hmm. I mean, what's going, what, what are you, it just, does it just seem like same old broken record? What, what, what are your thoughts well, about if you, if you, Maya, if you look at the narrative in the uh, traditional police story, it's nine times out of 10, the same. I think they have already a written script. We saw a gun, the a suspect was fleeting. We felt endangered and we shot him. Absolutely. No matter where they hit the person, 
this is the narrative that they automatically give. But until the parents or the media or activists go out and investigate to see what happened, to try to uncover the truth about what has happened, that is when we get to the nooks and crannies about how CPD automatically lies. When I was looking through the reports and the supplementary reports of my son, it literally seemed like they were uh, copying and pasting. Like whoever entered the first uh, note, they the next detective, the next officer went and copied and pasted. And co it's the same exact thing on about 40 pages. And so they're not adding any new details or investigative notes or anything of that nature. They're following the script. And so what we're seeing is that they're all on one accord and we talk about this uh, blue wall of silence and they're protecting each other. And I think it goes way past CPD. It, it actually enters over into CFD, the paramedics, the EMT, everybody and maybe even hospitals covering for everyone why didn't i often ask why didn't the uh the paramedic uh the the hospital report that my son was handcuffed why didn't they videotape it so you know it's like our backs are against the wall we are fighting everyone to just to find out what happened and to get the truth and so we're constantly having to dig and dig, dig, dig. And like I said, when obtaining records from CPD and trying to get to the truth, they've already erased some stuff. They've already altered some videos. They've already did everything they could to protect themselves. Because it took me almost a year, uh, two years to get the video. So they had two years to alter and do whatever they wanted to do. Uh, I'd like to come back to something, uh, J and Jeanette, you said twice. And believe it or not, I have the uh, press release and uh, that I copied that Mayor uh, Lori Lightfoot's press office sent out right after that Dave Savini story broke. And I got to tell you, and Jeanette, confession time. Don't hold this against me. I voted for Lori Lightfoot. I did too. Okay, I voted for her. <laughs> Maya smiling, I told you. Anyway, I voted for uh, Lori Lightfoot, okay? And she came to the hideout and she was on our stage when we did our show and she looked me over and she go, oh, this one is easy to fool. She told me everything I wanted to hear. I'm like, oh, what a great mayoral candidate. I'm voting for her. If I could vote for her twice, I would. So and I, I, you right know what? With you. Um, I, I, and I was with the teachers on that teacher strike, but I go, all right, let bygones be bygones. She doesn't like Stacey Davis Gates. I can't deal with, you know, whatever. But then this quote, today I became aware of an incident involving Ms. Anjanette Young from February 2019 before I became mayor. And I saw today for the first time. I'm reading the press release, Anjanette. Mm -hmm. I had no knowledge of either until today. I had a very emotional reaction to what was depicted on the video, as I imagine that many people did. And she closes, since this matter is the subject of litigation and an open COPA investigation, I will have no further comment. End of quote. Well, you know, Savini did a couple more stories. Gregory Pratt of the Tribune asked her a bunch of hard questions, and suddenly she couldn't stop talking about it. Mm -hmm. So, so much for the no comment. So you had that moment along with her. I did. Did you say, Mayor Lightfoot, I voted for you. Why would you say in that press release 
something that you know is not true. Did you have that moment with her? I did. So I'm going to walk you back from that moment a little bit. So before the moment where we had a one-on-one, uh, we did a, um, a um, press conference in front of um, police headquarters, maybe like a week before. And, and in that press conference, that was the first time that I spoke to the media um, in public. And what I said to her was, I voted for you. And I told her, you came to my church. So my, I remember I said before, my church has been, we have a social justice ministry. So we've been involved in the community. We held a forum for all of the mayor candidates. So, right, so all 12 or 14, how many of them it was, they all came to our church. So I attend Progressive Baptist Church right down 37 in Wentworth off the Dan Ryan. And we have a huge church. Our church could hold 1,500 people. That night we were full to the brim. All of the mayor candidates came. Everybody in the city who wanted to come was invited. She stood on the stage in um, at my church and I was there and she said all of these great things about how she was for reform and um, you know accountability. Her favorite word is accountability, right? And um, she, she spoke, I believed her, I voted for her, I told my friends to vote for her. When my incident happened, I knew that she was not the mayor, but when she became mayor, the, the first thing I said to myself was, she's gonna fix this for me because that's how much I believed her. So she, my incident happened in February, she became mayor in April. So I had hope in April that when it comes across her desk, she's going to do something about it. That's the way I felt in April. Did it happen? And so when this press release come out 18 months later, um, and now she's saying that she doesn't know anything about it, my first thing I said when I the first time I spoke publicly was, you came to my church and campaign and I voted for you. And so what I said to her is, I want you to come back to my church and tell me how you're going to fix this. And so we had scheduled um, to have an um, opportunity for her and city council members to come to the church. She denied that. She declined it. And we canceled. And then she and then we then she asked for a private meeting. So we had the private meeting myself, my attorney. Her and her attorney, the, um, the Celia lady who is interim um, uh, counsel for the city, and my pastor, uh, the Reverend uh, Dr. Charlie Dates. The four, the five of us, it was just the five of us, and we sat there and we talked. We sat there for about two hours talking, and I shared with her everything that I felt about how she handled my case. And she sat in front of me and told me all of the things that sounded good. And I labeled that meeting as perfunctory because after that meeting, nothing that we discussed has happened to date. And that meeting happened in January. And we are now at April 6th and she's done none of the things that we talked about in that meeting. Well, did she explain in that meeting how she could have slipped her mind that the video of a naked woman handcuffed by the police just she couldn't retain that. That's the part that I I keep tripping over, isn't it? She uh, when when I asked her about that, her response was that when she first came into office, um, her her priority was the city's budget, and so some things slipped by her because she was so focused on that. 
and she um, mentions the emails as in, yes, the emails came across my desk, um, but I, you know, I said we must talk about this, but then it didn't happen. And so it, it just kind of fell through the cracks. That's basically the way she explained it in short. It fell through the cracks. Wow. And well, so and what I said is it just goes to show um, that I continue to be ignored and that I'm not important. I was ignored the night that it happened. You ignored me when I filed for a four-year request. You ignored me when my attorney submitted all type of briefs and documents and, and court proceedings to um, talk about this. <clears throat> and you still ignore me today, April 6, 2021. Two years and two months later, and I'm still fighting with the city who has done very little to make resolution with me and my legal team. Well, and Shapro, you're, did you experience any difference in how interactions with the city or the police department after the mayors changed? I mean, your case dates back to the ROM years and the police department under ROM. And I know the bulk of your investigation happened before Lori Lightfoot became mayor, but I'm just curious, you know, where, where are you at in terms of your, your struggle with the police department in the city? And yeah, was there any change when Lightfoot became the mayor? There was absolutely no change since Mayor Lightfoot has become mayor. I was very critical of anybody who really who uh, would get into that position. Uh, but I was uh, very critical because I wasn't sure if she would align more with the police or the citizens. So I was very cautious about her, even though I felt that, you know, she was a nice person, but I, I know her background. So that bothered me. And I was very cautious about what we'd be getting in her as a mayor. I'm of a small suburb of uh, Chicago, so I can't vote for her. But as a mother who had a child who passed away in the city, I still advocate and uh, do a lot of activism in the city of Chicago. And so I was still out there. Hey, everybody in Chicago need to ask the questions about what it is, how, where she stands on certain issues about uh, police reform and criminal justice. Mm -hmm. And so I was very adamant about that. And I was concerned also with her allegiances with some of the activists because she was meeting with the activists more than she was meeting with the parents. And so that concerned me greatly. And it, it, it set me back a little bit from really giving her any kind of support. And so um, Rahm, Rahm Emanuel never um, answered the questions about my son's death. Um, and the previous superintendent, uh, Eddie Johnson, he promised to look into Courtney's case and never did. I haven't heard anything from Mr. Brown. I haven't heard from detectives. Since my son was killed five years ago, I've had about three conversations with police total and uh, two in-person uh, meetings that I requested. And so you, when you have... Um, a, a death in the city of Chicago, um, whether if, if it goes to any detective agency, you don't even get any updates. Mm -hmm. 
So right now with Courtney's case, the, uh, the city inspector general has picked it up and I'm very grateful to inspector Ferguson for taking a look at his case. So right now that's where his case is. So and, your case, and it's still an open case, right? Technically it's still an open murder case, despite the it's, fact it's that you've identified code. potential suspects. Yes. It's and an open Chappelle, code. Um, it's, I mean, I'm happy for you that IG has picked up the case and is, you know, at least saying to you that they're going to do some work behind it. COPA, IG have both said that they are investigating my case. Mm -hmm. Well, my case, again, I will say two years and two months and nothing. How long does it take to investigate 12 officers when you have all of the evidence that you need on the body cam footage? Mm -hmm. The body cam footage is not, it's not um, distorted. It's very clear what happened. Mm -hmm. There's no mistake about what happened that night. And there are videos that show the officers discussing that they got it wrong. So I don't it, understand why it's taken them so long to resolve an investigation there, everything about that investigation is very clear on how they got it wrong. And, and I believe it's only simple because if they resolve your issue, Ms. Young, it's because they're gonna have to admit, admit some guilt. Mm -hmm. And that is something CPD, that is something that the mayor's office do not want to do. I, you know, people were always asking me, well, what resolution are you looking for? You know, I'm like, you know what? They did a lot to my son. They did a lot to him. The fact that they allowed him to bleed to death in front of them and they didn't do any life-saving techniques. They handcuffed him, adding more trauma to him. And we're seeing how in the uh, George Floyd case, how the positioning of the body uh, uh, cuts off uh, circulation to the lungs and the breathing. This is what happened to my son. You know, so, you know, the pressure from the handcuffs, the way that they had him positioned, those accelerated him, him dying. And so and he was already shot and, and, and it pierced his lungs. So these are the things that it's nothing that they could say to me, but I want them to correct in policy and laws, mm -hmm. these are the things that I need CPD to change. It's not about Courtney anymore. Yes, I want a resolution. Yes, I want justice for my son. But this is about saving the rest of the world at this point. This is about making sure mothers like me don't have to go on, on TV and cry and plead for justice for their children. This is just asking for humane treatment for every citizen of this uh, of this country, no matter of race or color. That's what I'm asking. Chappelle, on last evening, um, there was a um, there was a um, panel that was held by um, some of the um, Asian American churches here in the city of Chicago, along with some of the black um, churches. It was and it was at Apostolic Faith on um, last night. And my pastor was on the panel and there was some Asian American uh, pastors on the panel. And um, Pastor Horace Smith was there as well. And something he said last night that stood out to me. He said, the victims are being asked to solve the problem. And that's exactly, mm -hmm. and that stood, that resonated with me because when I think about all of the work that you're doing 
to find out what happened to your son because they won't do it. And then all of the work that I'm doing to expose the city, it's like we're doing the work mm-hmm. to solve a bigger problem and we're the victims. Mm-hmm. And um, so that, that statement stood out to me last night when they were talking about, you know, the, the, um, all of the violence that has been happening in the Asian community, you know, you know, starting, you know, it was exposed more with the case in Atlanta, but just bringing all of that to the, the forefront, like Atlanta is not the first time that this has happened. It's the first time that it's gotten, you know, some national exposure. And it's just talking about the different hate and violence that's happening around the city. And why is it that we, the victims, are the ones that are doing the most work to try to correct what has happened? And, and that's because they simply don't care. You know, just like I like I was saying before, is that we have to advocate for those who can no longer speak. We have to do the work for those who um, cannot speak for themselves, can't advocate for themselves. We have to go out here and make them do it, you know. And so a- as a mom, you know, we're sitting up here just analyzing and waiting for them to do it. And they didn't, they weren't doing anything. When I looked at his files, I had the initial night of the incident, then I had the ballistic report, and then I had uh, the autopsy report. That was what's in his file. So all the supplementary reports, like talking to witnesses, and then even when they talked to the witness, they weren't asking detailed questions. They weren't trying to solve the case. Mm -hmm. They were never trying to solve his case. Never. If you look at what the questions they asked, well, where were you? You know, even the person my son was going to see that night, the only thing they asked her was how to get in his phone. Why does that matter? Why does that matter? They wanted to see who my son called before he called. And they knew that he had called 911 and they were trying to get into his phone to see how long he was on that phone call. So it was a lot of things that that they were doing to try to, it seems to me that they were covering up the missteps that they were taking, but it wasn't to solve. It wasn't to rectify what they did. It wasn't to restore your honor, Ms. Young. It was not to restore Courtney's honor. It's basically to cover their butts. And that's what they've been doing. And that's their main priority. Ben, before you ask your question, let yeah. me just uh, tell the audience if uh, so they can start sending their questions as well. Um, so, okay, for those of you watching, if you've got questions or comments, if you just hover your um, hover your mouse over the screen where you see the video, on the top right-hand corner, there's a little chat bubble. There's a little word bubble. You click on that, open the chat. And then down below, you can enter your name and then you can start chatting with us and sending questions. So you all can go ahead and, and send in your questions. And as we go along here, I'll, um, I'll relay them to, um, to Anjanette and Chipperl. Go ahead, Ben. All right. Uh, yes, I, I was just about to say, let's uh, bring in some questions uh, from listeners. Uh, the, mainly what I'm about to say applies to Anjanette, but uh, Chipperl, I think it applies to you as well. Let me try to say this as best I can. I'm going to put my mind, my, uh, myself in the mind of a lawyer for the city of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, what an interesting mind. Uh, anyway, sorry. Uh, and so, um, 
So I'm in the mind of a lawyer for the city of Chicago. And Ed Jeanette, I'm thinking also of the lawyer for the city of Chicago when Laquan McDonald uh, was murdered and they were looking at that videotape. And I'm just going to say this. If I'm a lawyer for the city of Chicago, I'm not looking at justice for Anjanette Young. I'm not looking for justice for Laquan McDonald or Shapiro Wells or Courtney Copeland. I'm looking to limit liability for my client, the city of Chicago. So, and I wish your lawyer was here. Unfortunately, he couldn't make it, but I would love to ask him his question as a, as a, a lawyer himself. That's, they string you along, Anjanette. They're hoping you drop your case. They're hoping it just disappears because if they were to come to you and say, oh my God, this is shocking, what they did to you, that means they're going to have to pay you some money. And it was the same thing. That's what they did with Laquan McDonald. They essentially said, bury the videotape, just put it in a drawer somewhere, cut this deal right now. I think it was $5 million, Anjanette. Don't quote me, but I think it was $5 million. Let this thing go away. And some community activists and a, and a journalist were the ones who forced the issue by going public. And in your case, your lawyer and you giving it to Savini, that's where I were at. That's why we're having this conversation right now. And so, Ben, and ben I'm going to tell you this. I can say this because um, it, it's public. So I can say things that is already in the public. So um, on last week, Keenan and I did a, a story last week, um, an update story about how the city has not responded to us. And we revealed an email where back in um, November of 2020, it may have been November of 2020, we sent a demand to the city before we released the body cam footage. We didn't even have the body cam footage at that time. Uh, we sent a demand letter to the city and they responded back to our demand with zero dollars. And you can, um, so we did a story with CBS2 last week about that. So even when we went to them and said, we're, we're willing to settle, they came back to us and said, no, zero dollars. So now we're two years later and everybody's seen the video. This was before the video. And now that everyone has seen the video and now they've been completely exposed with all the lies, all the cover up, the four year cover up, the, them going to federal court to stop the story, you know, the cover up of the emails. Now all of that is exposed. So back when they could have settled this in, you know, in a more simpler way, they refused it. And so now um, it's going to, you know, the acts, what we asked for last year is not what we're going to be asking for this time. And they are going to have to pay. And the unfortunate piece of what you said, Ben, is uh, I'm not I'm not going away. Right. So this is um, they can drag this out as long as they want. Um, I, I know just from my time of, you know, kind of learning about the city of Chicago through my own cases that oftentimes the attorney, they do. They, they make a quick settlement so the story can go away. And then there's no um, there's no um, admit of guilt when they make those settlements. So they didn't want to settle with me and back on a year ago. And now what I'm asking for is way beyond what they're probably willing, what they, what we probably would have accept, you know, some time ago. And I'm not just, I'm not just looking for them to give me a payout. I'm asking for policy change. I'm, I'm, I'm being very vocal about 
what it is that they have done and what it is that they that I would like to see different. And so we are we we're pushing forward a um, ordinance, a city ordinance. Um, the ordinance is called the Internet Young Ordinance. Um, it's my name is on it because the things that we're asking for is based on the way I was treated um, the night that they um, I had this experience. But this ordinance is really about everybody else that comes after me, how they how they treat people when they knock on the doors, how they do raids, you know, diversifying raid teams. There are 12 white men in my home that night. And so we're, we're asking that those teams be diversified, that I would like to think that if there was at least one black man on that raid team, that maybe I would have been treated a little different. I would just, there's a part of me would just like to hope that that would have been the case had there been a black man in that room. And also there's a part of me that would like to hope that if there was a female in that room, that I may have been treated just a little bit different as well. So we're asking for things like that. Diversify the raid team. There needs to be if a female on the scene when these happen, um, primarily to deal with children um, as it relates to the Peter Mendez case and how they pointed guns at these babies, you know, a female, so that I wouldn't have maybe had to stand for over 40 minutes naked in front of 12 white men. And when they did allow me to get dresses because they had to call a CPD squad officer, female squad officers to come and get me dressed because at this point they care about me being naked. You, you, you stand there and let me be naked and you've seen everything about my body, but I can't, I can't get dressed now because you're waiting on a female officer. I mean, why does that matter at this point? Mm, I agree. And I Chico, agree. You're also calling for policy change, right? Tell us about Courtney's law. Yes, uh, we are pushing Courtney's law and Courtney's law is piloted after a program called Scoop and Run that's that they're doing in Philadelphia. One of the things that we found out is that in Philadelphia, over 80 percent of uh, gunshot victims are transported by police as opposed to waiting on paramedics. And it's like um, they're saving lives. And so we felt that if we enacted this policy here in Illinois, that it will also save more lives because we see that there is a delay in the black and brown community and getting our children the help and care that they need. And so we feel that with Courtney's law, it would automatically force police to not only um, uh, call 911, which is all they're required to do at this point, uh, is to call 911, but also render aid, as well as also transport them to the nearest trauma center. And so uh, all of those things, they failed my son at. They they did call 911 immediately, but they didn't render any aid, and they didn't take him to the nearest trauma center. So all of those decisions that they made that night cost my son his life. And so... Um, and, and, and we know that time is of the essence. If someone is critically injured, if they're shot, if they're stabbed, you know, I always I often think about when I talk to CPD and when I interacted with them, I told them, if my son was your son, how, how long would you have waited? How long would you have allowed your child to bleed on the ground for 13 minutes before you took him to the hospital, before you put him in an ambulance and took him to the hospital? Because then would you get would you have taken him to a close hospital? Or would you have taken him 
way clear across town if it was your child. And so we have to take that onus away from them because they have too much flexibility. They have too many decision-making skills. We need to be like, no, this is what you need to do. If you encounter a gunshot victim, you need to pick them up, take them in the, take them to the nearest trauma center and not give them an option because when they, when you give them the option, the race card always plays a factor. factor. We've got Tracy in the comments asking what we can, what can we as the public do to help? So, I mean, I'm wondering if when it comes to these uh, pieces of legislation, I mean, Anjanette, this Anjanette Young ordinance is in the city council. Um, Chappelle Courtney's law is a state, is a state, is a state law proposal, right? So has it been introduced in the state, in the state Senate or state house? Uh, My local state representative, Elizabeth Hernandez, we're working on that. We're trying to get support. Of course, we're getting a lot of pushback because of the FOP. And so it's, it's a battle because it's, 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 it's a journey trying to change uh, CPD laws because the FOP is very, very strong and they have a lot of political strength to be able to have protection and so it's going to take people every citizen of the state of illinois to support our causes to put pressure to email them say hey we need courtney's law hey i don't care what uh what uh district you're in what precinct you're in call for these laws because these laws not only will save lives but it will restore the humanity of black people in illinois and i would say how people can support is um along with what Chappelle said um share my story with everyone everywhere we have to keep this in the forefront of the, um of the news of the media of the um of the mayor we need to let the mayor know she will not get another term as long as Anjanette Young is alive and living in the city of Chicago. Exactly. I'm not running for anything, but I will be on someone's campaign saying Mayor Mayor Lori Lightfoot does not deserve another term in the city of Chicago because she has not done anything that she campaigned and ran on on the first time around. She speaks a lot about accountability and transparency, and she has not... Um, served the people well. She has not served me well. She has not served the city of Chicago well. And she does not deserve a second term um, as mayor. And like I said, you can also email, tweet, uh, blow up their social media. That's what everybody can do because they seem to respond to negative press. They don't, they don't, if I call her or ask to schedule a meeting, we're going to get turned down because we're not important enough. But guess what? If you pressure her to take these meetings and to make policy changes on what you want to see for your city, because it's, it's us today, but it's you tomorrow. It is us today and you tomorrow. So no one is, is, is exempt. So we all have to unite together in order to make a change in this country. Absolutely. Maya, are there any uh, questions or comments from the listeners before you can, I? Uh, do, you can do another one. I'll, uh, well, I just uh, want to make an editorial comment, uh, and Jeanette, get your the reaction to this in your pearl too. Uh, so you say the offer that came back from the city's attorneys was zero dollars. Zero dollars. And that was offer was issued 
before or after Dave Savini uh, did his report? It was that offer was made before the body cam footage was shown. Got it. OK, I'm just saying this as a guy who's lived in the city of Chicago, paid property taxes to the city of Chicago since 1981 and have been writing about what the city of Chicago does. I sure wish that lawyer with the hardball tactics with you and Keenan was representing the city of Chicago on the parking meter deal. <laughs> yeah. Where was that guy when we needed him on the parking meter? How yeah. about a Lincoln Yards? That's a TIFF deal. What? Where was that guy on the, uh, when, when Ron was trying to give Jeff Bezos all that money for, yeah. oh, take more. Hey, what land would you like? Hey, whatever you want. We should have had that guy representing the city, Jeanette. You got the, you got the bum luck. You got the tough lawyer, and they give the rich people, Bezos, Lincoln Yards, the parking meter company, they give them the easy lawyers. Just That was just my editorial aside. What do you think of that, Anjanette Young? <laughs> um, you're absolutely right, Ben. And the interesting part is the attorney that um, was representing the city back then. So he's the one, you know, so when my story came out, there were like three people who resigned, right? Or basically resigned, got fired, whatever the case is. Uh, but he's out. And so then they uh, put in um, acting um, city attorney, um, Celia. I don't remember her last name. Um, she's the acting attorney. And so, but now the city has hired outside attorney uh, for my case. So if you are interested in resolving this matter, why did you need to hire outside attorney? Which firm do you know? Um, the, the late, the attorney's name, I do not know off the top of my head. Um, but they've now hired outside attorney, outside counsel. Why do you need outside counsel if your desire is to resolve this matter as quickly as possible? Cause that's what she said in the press release, right, Ben? Uh, let me go back to the press release after that, Young. Uh, since this matter is subject of litigation and an open COPA investigation, I will have no further comment. Let me just say this, Angela. You're awfully hired on lawyers. They got to work, too. That lawyer's got to feed his or her family. So I'm happy that lawyer's making some money off of the Angela Young raid. Someone, at least someone in the city of Chicago is profiting from it. Some lawyer from some law firm got to, oh, I'll take this deal. Unbelievable, Angela. The more I hear about the story, it's so Chicago, you know, and, and Maya asked you this, and I'd love to get your thoughts, uh, Shapiro and, and Jeanette. Maya said this, like, I think early on, like, what does this tell you about the city of Chicago? I'm welling up with thoughts about what it tells me about the city I've lived in since 1981. Shapiro, you, you said you're in the suburbs, but you grew up in Chicago. So for me, I would definitely say what I've learned from this is how uh, deep rooted the corruption is in the city of Chicago. I've learned that there are some things in place as it relates to how much control FOP has that goes back to the first daily, right? The first daily put some things in place that allows FOP to operate the way that they operate. And so that's what I'm learning, how deep rooted the corruption is, how far it goes back and how they will do almost anything to cover for each other. And I agree. Uh, this is a, a, a sick culture called Chicago Police Department. And they protect everyone by any means necessary. So it doesn't matter uh, if um, they know their officers did something wrong. 
They always teach them to never admit any guilt, to hide and conceal as much as possible, to, to try to suppress, intimidate uh, uh, the people that are trying to get the right information. So these are things that, that we see uh, that is happening in the city of Chicago. And like she said before, you know, we saw way back that this has been a culture and so it doesn't matter which mayor we get, because even the mayor can't break the wall of the FOP. I don't even think that they will even uh, listen to her because they will basically stand down, which we've seen them do in recent years where they won't even respond to crime. So we know that if police have decided to stand down, and a mayor serves no chance. So she has to work with them. She has to listen to them and obey them more so than them obeying her. So we see the changing of guard over and over again, but we see the problem still remains. And that's because the FOP is still in charge of Chicago. Well, well, they, let, me, they, well, let me just say this response. I'm critical of the FOP as much as the next guy, particularly under this particular leadership. But I cannot blame the FOP for the decision to come back uh, to Anjanette Young with a zero. And I cannot blame the FOP for the decision to hire an outside lawyer after the mayor herself said, I want this resolved. I mean, there's a different culture in Chicago, uh, Shapiro and Anjanette, a culture, I don't know, it's like I confront this all the time. It's hard for me to articulate it, Anjanette and Shapro. Shapro, I know I said this to you when you were on my show. This culture that you never admit you're wrong. You're always right. When someone punches you, you punch them back three times. If you have a gun, you shoot them. That is so Chicago, that mentality, the retaliatory attitude that Chicago has. And so I'm a lawyer. I'm never going to admit I'm wrong. I'm going to protect the liability of my client. And well, so then they know that we as ordinary citizens lack resources to fight them. They know that we would have to have a, a war chest to fight the money against the city. So every, every tactic that they're using right now is to weigh Ms. Young down to hope that she will forget about it. Guess what? Or that she'll take the money. And a lot of Guess people... Guess what? That's never going to happen. Um, I have a strong support system mm -hmm. physically, and then I serve a God that will never allow this to mm -hmm. go away without real justice happening. So they can bring on the fight. Mm -hmm. I'm ready to fight. Yes. Yeah, and, and, and so many people are in this position when, like, the... I think this was, this was the case with a lot of victims' families, like victims of police misconduct, is, like, some people are not in a position to turn down... I mean, not zero dollars, but whatever little Amount. bit of money they may throw at them, yeah. that's way less than the compensation they deserve for whatever it is that they went mm -hmm. through. So they just shut people up by throwing them more money than some of these folks have ever seen in their lives. But that's mm -hmm. still not nearly what they would get if they actually went to trial and, 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 and you know, had a, had a proper settlement. So there's like a lot of manipulation of people's financial vulnerabilities as well. And I mean, we saw this in the Charles Green case. This was the big FOIA lawsuit. A guy was wrongfully convicted, got out, 
he was 16 when 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 they when they basically used like they coerced him into confessing participating in a murder he went to prison for like over 20 years got out filed a foia asking for every police misconduct case going back to the mid 60s and they just ignored him because he was just some guy and so mm -hmm. because they ignored him then they had to turn the records over and when a judge said you all have to turn the records over because you didn't respond in a timely manner that's when they started fighting him and finally they offered him five hundred thousand dollars to settle and this guy has been he's a convicted felon he's still his name hasn't been cleared he's been in prison for over 20 years like he, he's his health is terrible like he's not in a position to turn down five hundred thousand dollars mm -hmm. and they know that and so i mean in the end there was enough attention on the case and the invisible institute was also was working with 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 promoting this this case as well um and uh, in the end, the city didn't approve the settlement, which kind of kept the issue alive. And we still may be getting these records. Um, but yeah, but they're basically, it's like, until they think you're somebody, until you're somebody to them, they just mm -hmm. kind of ignore and deflect and you know get defensive. But once there's some media attention on the situation, then they start talking a slightly different talk. But um so Maya, I, do, Wait, I'm I agree with you 100 percent um, about you know people not having resources to fight um, the way that they deserve, and I don't take it lightly that I'm in a position to fight. Right. So I was already a member of a church that had a social justice ministry. So I was able to connect with Keenan. This happened on Thursday. I connected with Keenan on Sunday. I know that that's not everybody's story that they can connect that quickly to a very um, appropriate and well-known attorney that can fight the city. Everybody's case is not like that. You, generally, they're looking, generally they're being hunted down by ambulance chaser attorneys who want to get something from them. That was not my case. And then I don't take it for likely that as a social worker, um, I also had some resources behind me um, in, in that aspect too. I knew what I needed to get counseling and mental health um, support for myself. I knew where to go. I knew what that looked like. And I know that that's not everybody's experience. It's not everybody's experience that I belong to a church that's this well known in the city and, you know, with social justice that would stand behind me. And so I have all these different supports and things that I know that's not readily available for everyone. And that's another reason why I'm fighting as hard as I'm fighting, because I want to make sure that people have those type of support if they ever would have an experience anywhere close to the experience that I have had. And I was just going to say that, you know, a lot of people do want to throw money at you and, and make you shut up for you to be silenced. And, um, I always were of, of the premises that there is nothing, there is no amount of money that you can make this right. Mm -hmm. There's not, a, if you offer me a billion dollars, it's still not going to make it right because my child is dead. Mm -hmm. And so there is, you know, at some point, um, we have to reconsider, um, you know, the settlements not saying that settlements are bad and they are needed to try to, you know, replace some of the loss for the family, but we need legislative justice. We need to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And so for me, uh, it's always been the bigger picture. Yes, we could, we could uh, take a settlement, but I, more importantly, 
I want this to never happen again. I don't want any parent to have to witness their child begging the police to help them. And so these are the things that we have to realize what's more important is to, to uh, prevent anything like this from happening. Mm. Let me get another audience question here. Um, we've got Chuck Carlson asking um, both of you, have you found any agencies of government or law enforcement helpful in any way? Uh, was there any agency of government or law enforcement that didn't disappoint you in this whole process? No, I, I am thankful for the media. Um, Dave Savini and, um, and CBS2 Chicago, I am so thankful to them um, because my incident happened in February. I first met with Dave around October, November when we first started working on airing this case. And Dave has been with me since November of 2019. So he, ha he has been with me. He personally speaks with me. He has been fighting for this. He runs stories constantly, keeping it in the media so that my story will not be forgotten. And so I'm thankful for that. Um, as it relates to government, um, my local church is amazing. But other than that, any city official, the city council, I take that back, the city council, the, I, there are people on the city council who stand behind me, and I'm thankful for that. Um, so there has been some, you know, support in areas of that way, but the um, Chicago, the police department, you know, David Brown, you know, the mayor and her office, they have done nothing to resolve this case with me. The, um, the IG uh, reports that they're investigating, COPA says they're investigating two years and two months later, and they're still investigating. And I'm also optimistic about the IG taking on Courtney's case. I'm hoping that they will do a thorough investigation, do things that we could not get to, which is investigate uh, in an in interview the cops that were actually um, seen with Courtney that night to figure out what happened, who handcuffed him, uh, who made that decision, why was that decision made. All of those unanswered questions I'm hoping to get an answer from the IG from. But I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm still optimistic. But you know, we're trying to, to to push forth Courtney's law. We're working with our state legislators to try to push that forward. So you know, all government isn't bad. All police aren't bad. Uh, uh, you know, I don't have a, a a bad bone with the mayor. But I think that they have to listen to the people that are on the ground and be more attentive to our needs. Like, uh, you know, just policy changes. Like I like I said earlier, I've only spoken with detective probably three times. You should be able to get a monthly report on what they've done on your case. You know, people go years without hearing that anything has happened to to, to their case. And so. If I wasn't so actively involved with finding out what happened to my son, I think that it would be less that has done what was done on his case. So my thing is that we have to uh, make those changes so that that way we can rebuild the confidence. Because I think that, you know, uh, we need to have a relationship with police. We need to have a, a, a relationship with our elected officials. But we have to begin to rebuild the trust in order to do that. 
Well, we're almost at eight o'clock. Ben, you got one more um, one more question? Well, I, I have one question, which is a follow up to that one. Uh, and uh, then we'll close it down. And that is, have you just heard from just a random, like a police officer, just an individual, not an official capacity, just like someone, I mean, Anjanette Young, you're known, okay? Uh, you're known internationally probably after that. Uh, and Chapro, you're probably known in Chicago among police officers. Has anybody uh, just like, just said to you, Chapro Wells, I really apologize or I feel bad about what happened or Anjanette Young, man, that that's just terrible, you know? Uh, has anything just like on a personal level, just a fleeting moment in an interaction with just one individual, something like that? I have um, been, so um, I, I mentioned several times how supportive my church is. So there are many police officers who are members of my church um, and um, CPD police officers who are members of my church and they all have um, stood in um, solidarity with me. There are officers um, on UIC's campus. So I work for UIC, They're the UIC Police Department campus. There are officers on that campus who have mentioned how they are, you know, in solidarity and support and uh, with me. And so I have had that experience. And I'm with Chappelle. I don't think all officers are bad. And I don't, my beef with the officers who came to my home that night was not that they got the information wrong and they showed up at my door. It was everything they did when they got on the other side of my door. Um, and the biggest piece for me with how they treated me that night was that I was invisible to them. They didn't answer any of my questions and I beg and plead, can I get dressed? You have the wrong place. Can I call someone? They completely ignored everything that I said. And when they did respond to me, the officer told me I needed to calm down. And so it, it's that type of interaction with the 12 men who were in my home and not 12, the 12 men who were in my home, they didn't all speak to me. So the others were bystanders. And so who knows, you know, what their thoughts or opinions were, you know, did they care? Were they just following the lead of whoever was in charge? I mean, I don't know. Um, because I, I probably never know because I'll never get an opportunity to speak to them if this goes to trial. Of course, you know, some of that, you know, we'll be able to ask them some of those questions. We would like to hope that we don't have to take this to trial, but we are ready and willing to take this to trial if we have to. Um, but I don't think all police officers are bad. And yes, I've had some experiences where there are some police officers here in the city of Chicago who have reached out to me and uh, very much support me in, um, in what I'm doing and the reason that I'm doing it. And I would say that, you know, I have a, a large support team as well, uh, like with the Invisible Institute, the media have covered his story. Um, I have, you know, the podcast out, Somebody, and that has given a lot of attention around the world. Uh, we get a lot of mail. So uh, basically, right now we have support of the American people that is highlighting um that are highlighting Courtney's case. Uh, but as far as, you know, public officials and government giving us, um, you know, some feedback, whether good or bad, 
we haven't heard a word. I'm not optimistic uh, that they will actually bring forth anything new. Uh, but, you know, I'm hopeful that the IG report will uh, be able to give us some more clues of what happened to Courtney that night. Hmm. Well, thank you both so much for uh, for being so generous with your time, for joining us, um, for being willing to talk about your stories. I know it must be, uh, you know, difficult to continue to return to these events and, and recall, but um, I know you're an inspiration to a lot of people um, and really um, are launching movements in the city. So thank you both so very much. And uh, I know our audience appreciates you as well. And um, for all of you One final thing. Yeah. Um, and specifically want to share this with Chappelle. Um, I don't know if you're aware. So um, before all of this happened, so I would say maybe like 2018. Um, so I'm a, I'm a social worker. And so in 2018, and we do all type of training. So in 2018, I'm, I'm in a training, mental health training. And um, the, the guy's name is Mark Miller. He wrote a book called Jolt. I don't know if you've ever heard of it before. It's J-O-L-T. And basically in that book, it talks about um, um, Trayvon Martin's mom is in this book and some other people. And basically what it says is that when you have traumatic experiences in your life, it's gonna you're going to go one or two ways, right? So you're going to live in that trauma uh, for the rest of your life or it will jolt you into something greater or bigger. So if you ever have an opportunity to um, grab that book, it's a really good book. And it just talks about taking your, your, your trauma and turning it into something great. And so Chappelle, I am absolutely honored to be sitting here beside you on this evening. Um, I feel your pain for yourself and your family and, you know, and losing a son. I can't even imagine what that feels like. But knowing that you are the epitome of what is said in this book about joke, like taking your experience and moving forward in a way to make change um, for yourself and for someone else. And thank you so much for that. And I, I admire your strength as well. And uh, that's what I've been. I, I, I told God, I said, God, I don't know why you chose me for this journey, but I know. I know there's something good coming on the other side. And so I have always uh, taken the the pain and turned it into a purpose because I, I believe that my son would want me to live and to live life purposely. And so that's what I want to do. And that's why I keep fighting not only for justice for Courtney, but also for others and to bring uh, some of the things that Courtney was doing um, that before he passed away, he was helping the community. So we started the Courtney Copeland Memorial Foundation just to bring honor to his name and to keep his name alive, but also to to serve as a healing, a healing, a healing center for for everyone around the world. Great. And I'll drop this. Um, the Courtney Copeland Memorial Foundation URL into the chat as well. Um, Thank you again for sharing your stories. Um, I'm so glad we could have both of you here in conversation and to get a chance to chat with you as well. And uh, for everybody watching at home, thank you so much for continuing to support The Hideout through this pandemic time and coming to First Tuesdays. And um, we'll probably take um, 
a month or two off, but this summer it looks likely like we'll be able to have a live show again with a few people joining us outside on the hideout patio and um, we'll hopefully be able to continue to stream it online as well for those who um, who can't be there in person, but hopefully everybody's getting vaccinated and we're getting uh, taking steps closer to, to, to coming back to, to more of our normal life. Um, Thank you, everybody, and um, stay safe out there. Ben, you got any last thoughts? Just stay safe. Thank you very, minute, uh, very much, Anjanette and Shapiro. Take care, Thank everybody. You. Thank you for having us.